Footy Nuffies, welcome to another episode of The People's Game with your favourite trio of miscreants since Harry, Ron and Hermione. We've gathered for a spot of brekkie to dissect all the happenings in the world of sport, mostly in footy, but we've got a few alternate offerings on the brunch menu this morning. Team, how are we? Feeling very bright and chipper this early Wednesday morning, JB. I'm very well fit as well. Shout-outs to the People's Chef, JB. Done well. Did very good there. And shout-outs to our KS for winging us into her more-than-humble abode. Yeah, it's been weird having you guys around for this. I feel a bit, um, like, kitchen cabinet vibes. Like, <laughs> you guys like Annabelle Crabbe coming in to, like, judge my kitchen and make me prepare you a meal. Did it go over okay? Did we have a good time? Yeah, the food was a 10. So, we're going to get into our pies, or our, you know, our goods and our bads, but we've renamed them because it's breakfast, not, not lunch or dinner. So, the Good Smashed Avo, where the cafe has used multiple avos to make their smashed avo. It's the cafe's me. Um, I'm going to lead us. I'm going to lead us here um, with a bit of the bit of the smashed avo. So, I've gone with the Zach Merritt piece as my, my good thing for the week, which came out last night. Um, it was a follow-on from the Players' Tribune article by Kyle Corver that we discussed a couple of weeks ago, which was obviously about um, systemic racism in America and racism in the NBA. And this was kind of a piece that we've been looking for um, in the AFL space in terms of having an AFL M player come out in favour of um, rampant sexism. So he wrote this column for Fox Sports. It's been widely shared on social media. It was probably what's only been out nearly what, just over 12 hours now, and mm-hmm. I think it's already got fairly rave reviews. And I know that going to some events over the last, oh, sort of the later half of the AFLW season, there was a little bit of frustration. I felt that there wasn't a more vocal voice in the AFLM mm. for AFLW, and I think this has kind of filled that place. And he very specifically pointed out um, himself playing in the under-12s at Cobden Footy Club and having two girls in the team um, who obviously didn't have a pathway to follow and how different that has been to his own experience. So I kind of wondered immediately what you felt reading this piece, Case. Yeah, I think um, what you said there about the commentary towards the end of the AFLW season from some people in the media or fans about not having enough male allies in the AFLM competition is huge because I think that was a a real issue. Um, We actually spoke about this. I hosted a panel at the Clunes Writing Festival over the weekend with Nicole Hayes and Alicia Sometimes from the Outer Sanctum, and we were discussing um, essentially the Taylor Harris uh, photo, and that's something that they picked up right away was – that while there was a couple of AFLM players and ex-players lending their voice to support Taylor in that moment and call out the trolls, there just wasn't enough, nowhere near enough. And I definitely felt that as well. Um, I think this is such a huge shift into that space of not just having someone like Patrick Dangerfield share a tweet and say, yeah, I stand by Taylor, which was great. But to actually put pen to paper and put an article together that goes into these areas that are really uncomfortable and also also put yourself at the centre of that, which is what we discussed a couple of weeks ago with the Kyle Corver thing that actually puts you in the conversation mm. and calls yourself out as part of that is really brave. And I think um, I would love to see more um, AFLM athletes and more 
athletes across the board in Australia sort of lend their voice to something like this because we do we need to have that conversation opened up to the men like it's not just about the women um, we need men supporting women for women's issues to move forward in this space so I think this is a really positive step forward and and a really just great piece of writing too I think I was really impressed with what he was able to say mm, and I think if you surveyed AFLM players you would get this overwhelming response that they're all on side with AFLW. I don't think yeah. you would get anyone that would actively say, like, I'm against this. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a big difference between that and being a really active ally yeah. and acknowledging your own prejudice, which I think is why this is such an important piece. And when you're an AFLM player, it's pretty easy to get hold of, of a platform. Like, if you want a Herald Sun column or you wanted a column in The Age, it's pretty easy to do it. And I don't think anyone really has until now. Yeah. Um, and so it goes back to... Um, I guess Kyle Corver spoke a lot in his piece about opting in. Mm-hmm. And I think there's probably been just people in the AFLM space who haven't done that in such a... They haven't really signaled that they're opting in. Like, yeah. They're very passive in terms of their um, support. And I think that's where this is different. This is a very... In terms of being a an ally or a good ally, this is a very sort of direct, yes, this is what I stand for moment and piece. Yeah, definitely. And I think just echoing that line that uh, Corver used in his piece too, um, which Merritt also said, was that putting yourself out there, what you stand for, for your fans. So that whole, you know, if you are going to wear my, my Guernsey or my basketball jersey and my number, just know that this is what I'm about. And I think that's that's huge because it puts more responsibility on the fans as well to be part of that journey. And it brings that conversation back to something that's bigger than sport, which I know makes people uncomfortable and people want to keep politics out of sport, but too bad. Sport is inherently political, and I think it's really great to see players acknowledge that and really sort of draw that line in the sand. Mm, And I hope that when we get to AFLW Season 4 and we're still grappling with things like the conference system, it would be great to actually get some vocal AFLM players with Mm. large platforms in support of the the different issues that are actually relevant to the competition. Because if there's any criticism of the merit piece, and I'm not criticising him, mm-hmm. it's that in terms of timing, it's now AFLW's kind of run, done and won for the year. That doesn't See, I just disagree bad. with that in the sense that now's the time, if you want to be, re- like, be real about it, then that's the, this is the time to talk about it. Talk mm-hmm. about when it's not in vogue and it's not a cheap, easy thing to do. This is him yep. having a, an opinion now and being like, you know what, I read that piece, I have these thoughts, I have this lived experience... I'm going to say something about it. I'm going to say something about it now because, like, I had that thought now. Not wait till oh, wait till the season comes around. But also, the part I want to pull up on is he's he actually extended that Corbett piece a little bit to say I have a third choice, which is to act. So when you say things like Pay Dangerfield sent a tweet saying I stand by Taylor, well, Pay Dangerfield is the president of the AFL Players Association or the spokesperson for the playing community. How long until the AFLPA stands up for the AFLW? and says, well, actually, no, we're against, as an organised body that has a say at the table of the AFL Commission, we're against the conference system, or we're against uh, part-time contracts, or we're against not full-time athletes for the, in the women's space. I also think we need to not get so caught up with, I mean, while the AFLW issue in this is huge, like, I think the timing of the piece is also um, irrelevant to the AFLW because this speaks to a larger problem with sexism in the sport Mm. as a whole. So it's not just about the AFLW season and that sport as a separate code and treating that with respect. It's about, you know, 50% of the crowds who go to these games every every week. Like, we know that the women's participation in the AFLM game is huge from a spectator point of view, from an administration point of view. Like, there are women at this game at every level, no matter the code. So... 
it's not just about taking action to look after the women like who are playing the game it's calling out behaviors in the stands it's making sure that you're if you're going with women and someone says something around you that's derogatory that you are calling them out and you're making women feel more comfortable in that space that they deserve to be in so i think this piece is not just about looking after the aflw or other you know leagues of women who are playing footy it's a bigger issue like sexism in sport just runs across every single segment of this competition and every sport in the country and the world really so i think it's a lot bigger than that and if there's an essence to the piece that is his essence it's it's about behaviors because he does mention like covers piece about racism obviously that's a big issue in the afl and sport in australia in general but it was like my lived experiences through sexism so that's yeah. why I'm focusing on it not because mm-hmm. that other issue doesn't exist yeah and his major thing is yeah act so to the best of my ability can be extended to the reader as the best of their ability and so perhaps our best ability is just to turn someone in the stand and go come on yeah like that's not on yeah or Definitely. To, to tell someone in a, in a Facebook group actually no pull your head in mm. those comments aren't acceptable um, we love today Corin Corin want to say hello wave to the TV wave good boy did you enjoy that yeah good boy good boy Fantastic. And it's pretty special that you guys are able to do things like that for all the supporters, but especially for kids like Young Carl. Yeah, yeah, and obviously for his family too. Your good serve of smashed avo for the morning, KS? Uh, I mean, I'm probably just echoing a lot of things that people have already said about the experience of uh, young Kyron at the Collingwood Football Club um, during the week and leading up to Friday night's game against Port Adelaide, where the club really made sure he had a special experience um, to sort of assist him and his family going through a really tough time. Um, Kyron is a a young young boy who's uh, terminally ill and looks like he doesn't have too much uh, life left to live, which is just so heartbreaking. Um, but seeing the vision of him just being sort of celebrated during the week and, and on Friday night was just... Oh, I cried a lot. I mean, I cry a lot at sport, as I've said already, because I'm a very emotional person and sport makes me cry, just any sort of sporting montage. Um, and then also the moment um, at the Melbourne game where uh, James Harms went up to his number one fan, John, in the stands... Um, John, who has some uh, intellectual disabilities, who has just been obsessed with Harmsy and uh, got his little footy at the end and gave him a big hug. And um, I think uh, John had met James a couple of years ago and that fan relationship has really grown, which is just such a credit to Harmsy. And that moment at the end, there's some video that's been um, shared both by the club and by someone who was filming John as well. And the the vision that was filmed actually in the stands where um, Harmsy walks off and the camera goes back to John and you just see his smiling face after hugging him and getting a footy. It's just so, so beautiful. And it just makes me sort of come back to a place where, you know, I think football and sport is so important for so many reasons. And we criticise a lot of things that go wrong and, and we try to hold the code and clubs and players accountable for a lot of things, which I think is important. But we do need to remember that they do do so much right when these sort of things happen. And I think it also made me think about the evolution of that stuff. Like football clubs have been doing a lot of great work in this space for a long time, um, trying to engage with uh, fans who need a bit of extra love and care. And and that's always been great. But I think um, what I've seen, especially over this weekend, was just really credit to some of the younger players like Adam Trelaw and Harmsy who spoke about these fans with such care and 
um, consideration and just a real maturity. And I don't think I've really seen that before. And it just gives me hope that some of these younger men coming into the game are just a lot more socially aware of things, which sort of gives me hope for the future, mostly for a lot of stuff that we've already talked about um, with the merit piece too. So that just made me feel really good this weekend. You touched on the, the point there about yeah, these players being more aware, and it's especially the privileged ones, which are the ones you really need, the ones that mm. have the spotlight. Yeah. And especially like a guy like Harmsy, who was clearly best on ground, could have just been a bit self-absorbed and, and fair mm. enough, because if you have a moment like that, you, you just like a little head wobble and be like, oh, it played so well, awesome. But he has that moment of awareness to be like, actually, no, there, was, like, there are people that A, would have enjoyed that as much or more than me, and then there are people that their enjoyment is probably more important than my enjoyment at this very moment. Yeah. So to have that awareness is, is awesome and it extends out to all those other things. Definitely. And then, as you said, it's like it's nice to see that we could probably extrapolate that the majority of athletes in this space are kind of cool, positive people. And Buck mm-hmm. touched on that last night with Robbo on 360, had a bit of tete-a-tete about Robbo's uh, negative portrayal of Bucks in the Collingwood Football Club in the past. And he was saying, well, if you look at the overall arc you can have a beef with me you can have a beef with that performance you can have a beef with some of the extra activities that players have you have a beef with eddie Mm -hmm. but overall the climate football club has done so much right yeah and does it so well so often that you could focus on the one out of ten times where you stuff up or you can focus on the nine out of ten times where we just nail it and we nail it so seamlessly it's not even a big deal anymore Mm. it's like the this one was pretty special because they went above and beyond, and, and that's yeah. a credit to Trelaw as much as it's a credit to Collingwood. But they do that basically weekly. There's yeah. always someone invited mm. in mm-hmm. to just make their day a little bit better. So mm. it's just nice to remember that as much, yeah, as I said, as much as we call people out, it's like most of the time, it's pretty good. Yeah. Cool. From a media perspective, it is interesting what we do choose to sort of highlight. And I think it was just a good tonic this week in a lot of ways in terms of having something really positive being emphasised a little bit more than we probably get on your other weeks. In a weird way, Roaming Brian does that a little bit more now. I remember it was like two weeks ago he interviewed one of the bootstutters and he was like, oh, how much do you get paid of interest? And he's like, oh, nothing. I just volunteer because I enjoy it so much. So that's the actually the question was, that should be happening. And the, question, and the second question was like, oh, so like how long have you been doing it for? And he's like, 55 years. <laughs> and it's like, oh, like this is actually your... This is the part of the week where you get to enjoy, especially in a win, which is always a win with Roaming Brian. He's like, I get to be around a club that I enjoy... And have these moments that no one else gets, and you know, I'm not he's not very well off. He's not, you know, financially re- re- um, reimbursed for it, but he gets that little vibe the club gives him, and that's the that's the power of footy clubs in particular, because mm. they are as much as they are becoming professional environments, they still have that little bit of romantic, like romantic Australian country vibe to them. There's always negatives with any job that you're in. Nothing's perfect, hundred percent of the time. But the, the yeah, the thing I never really come to terms with or accepted or was happy about was the, the online bullying the articles. So moving on to um, not the cafe we've been in this morning, but the cafe that doesn't serve you enough smashed abos. So these are our dislikes, our poor meals, our whatever you want them to be. Um, mine is, I need to phrase this correctly because my cold, poor smashed abo is not Josh Green. It is the way that um, Josh Green and AFL players are trolled on social media and the impacts that can have on them. So I actually watched Josh Green, who's a, an ex-Essendon player of 105 AFL games across Essendon and Brisbane, playing Vaffer at the Uni Blues on Saturday afternoon. Uni Blues are actually little shout-outs. Great place to go and watch a game. Particularly if you want to... There's like, It's a bit of a who's who as well. Um, 
you see Gil was there, Hugh Nayland from Channel 9 was there, Razio Fantasia was there, along with multiple other AFL players, etc. Um, but essentially he spoke in an ABC Life interview on the 24th of April about how much he was affected by online trolling. Um, SEN picked it up yesterday and interviewed him on breakfast and it was essentially talking about just the fact that he used to get so much commentary focused around his weight in particular and once that kind of started via one article people picked it up on Twitter so it started as a media thing someone called him fat in an article everyone on Twitter then went with that as the sort of the default Josh Green insult um, and I just thought it was a really interesting sit back think about what you're doing moment and something that I wish more people were aware of and had read about because I think once you put it in the terms that he put it in um, where he ended up struggling with pretty severe anxiety which had not been a part of his life until he got into the elite system you kind of realise that there's a lot more at stake here than just wins and losses. Do athletes sometimes feel like they they need to be on social media? Because the other answer to that is you just, so again Bucks told me this on 360 last night, he's like I've just stopped reading the media like he didn't like it the way that the Herald Sun was reporting him as a person and as a coach and as a club, so he went, I'm not going to subscribe anymore. Like, yes, you should check your own writing, but in terms of weight, that's a critique you can have as a sports writer of a player at a club because it affects their performance. And we're going to get into Steve May later on, but that's the same, that's the same area. Like, you, your body is your tool. Just like if we write a piece and someone thinks that it's wrong, incorrect, not written very well, they're allowed to give comments on that. That's why we have comment sections on Is the problem weight or just fitness? I know they tie in, but is there not a more conscious way of phrasing that? Josh Green isn't fit enough, as opposed to Josh Green is fat. Mm. Well, I think the importance for me in this type of language is language that is demeaning and insulting or language that talks about their actual performance. So if the weight is in like directly impacting performance then just talk about their performance which is what I think I don't think you need to be personal about the weight I mean to throw in a West Coast reference of course um, there's been a lot of there's a lot of joking banter around West Coast about Jeremy Jeremy McGovern's weight Um, they sort of think he's like a bit roly-poly and he doesn't run but then like because his performance is still so good it's kind of irrelevant to his performance but there's still this banter about his body type and there hasn't been, like, that hasn't been dragged through sort of any sort of critique or anything, but it's just been something I noticed. And I just wonder, like, sort of thinking about Josh Green's position on this, like, I wonder if that's something that he actually thinks about, like, offline, because he doesn't address it in the media, and he still performs well, but that's something that's just, like, a personal conversation about his body in a way that doesn't need to happen because it's not impacting his performance. So I think the difference is if you are talking about a player who for whatever reason, isn't performing. Just talk about their performance. I don't think you need to talk about their body aesthetics. As a journalist, that's... Yeah, your use of words needs to be scrutinised. I would just say that... But if, but if, yeah. like, as in, like, if someone said Josh Green is overweight and it's affecting his performance in a written piece that was an, an analysis of his performance in a game, in an AFL sitting, I don't think that's beyond the pale. And then if Twitter picks up and goes, ha-ha, you're fat... Well, then that's on you as a person to just go, well, well I unsubscribe yeah. from Twitter. Twitter amplifies it. Yeah. Mm. But my understanding from what he's said is that it started with media. But I take you, I like, for some, like, body image is such a massively discussed issue in women's sport. Mm-hmm. 
um, and in vernacular and how women female athletes are talked about it and having coached female athletes you have to be very very careful about the language that you use and I think the media probably are aware of it I just don't understand why we suddenly have decided that men's sport is immune from that yeah like you talked about the McGovern thing mm. um, clearly body image is had some impact on Josh Green's mm -hmm. state of mind. So why is it that we've just decided that it's not an issue for male athletes? Well, I don't think we, I don't think we have decided that. It's just that I think statistically, it's less of an issue. Mm -hmm. It's less of less of, less of an issue that gets discussed it's in the general prevalent. public. Yeah. It's less prevalent. Yeah, but like there's definitely. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. No, correct. But that, as that, that's why it's not a general talking point. Yeah. Mm. Whereas there are campaigns about body issues in, in women's and spaces. And there should be, and I'm not saying there shouldn't be. I'm yeah, because it's prevalent and because it's everywhere. It's not just in sport. It's women's yeah, body yeah. gets judged for even things where bodies aren't their primary tool. But for male athletes, that is a very specific... There is a design, defined thought of aesthetic image of what the male athlete should look like, and when you don't live up to that, then, like, I but do you McGovern, think, there's but an do immediate you think question there is? that. Because I don't think there actually is. Like, that's where I disagree. Whereas, like, I think the, the, the issues around female body image that get portrayed even as a male consumer of culture looking in, at females in culture you see that like all female athletes have to be a certain body type which is the same body type as female actors the same body type as female presenters the same body like if you are taking an image of as a female you're expected to look a certain way and that is married up to be successful whereas like we have rugby union so a front row in rugby union is not bandied about being fat because he needs to be 120 kilos. Mm. A front, a, an O-line player in NFL is is lauded for being this massive unit. We have strong men. We have, like body shapes and things like that in in male in male sports are so are so like so celebrated and so diverse. Because we we have all those sports where they've always been that way. Mm. Like no one's laughed at being a heavyweight boxer that doesn't have abs because they know that you can't be 200 pounds and have abs. It doesn't work. So this is where my position is on that. Like, I think the two issues are inherently different, but it's because women's bodies are always judged through a sexual lens. Hmm. So that's why the issues are so much more prevalent um, in the women's space for all those fields that you mentioned. Um, and it's because if they don't conform, then they have no opportunities. The difference then with men's bodies is, as you said, there are so many opportunities for men to still succeed no matter their body type. So when men's bodies are talked about, because there's no lack of opportunity, it becomes banter and it becomes humor. So that's why I think it's not considered as damaging as perhaps the commentary around women's bodies. But that doesn't mean that it's not. Like, it clearly is damaging. Mm. But I think we have this perception that it's funny. And I think, like, a huge example of that um, at the moment is, like, uh, Gold Coast Suns coach, Shui Ju. Like, people joke about his weight all the time. Mm. But his weight is not tied to his performance. His doesn't... Like, his body type is irrelevant. But it's still sort of like this open fodder for people to make jokes about him, which I think is highly inappropriate and really, really damaging. And I can't stand it. But I think we're still in that space where because men aren't denied opportunities because of their weight, they can still fulfill these roles. So it still is in this very like, ha ha, look at you. And it, if you're not part of that conversation, then you're ostracized from that group when you're not conforming to the humor, not the body type. It's, an, it's just an interesting one in male space, but I would, going back to Gordon's point, I think there is now an expectation that footballers will look a certain way. Because there's an expectation that they show up a certain way. Like they have to, they have, like AFL is one of the very few sports where skin folds are so like religiously followed. Mm. It's not, it's not a real, like, so, and it's because it's a hugely aerobic sport and it's one of the better ways to work out if you've actually reached your 
your like aerobic capacity. So things like hockey, things like AFL, those kind of sports where they are more aerobic than power based, then yeah, you are expected to turn up in a certain way and to look a certain way because that's how you can tell if you've turned up in the right nick. So there is like, again, so whilst the performances, that's why you don't see many of them. And that's why the, the body of an AFL athlete has changed because the standards that are appropriate deemed by the clubs has changed. I get that. I just, just no, then, yeah, I think in your language, just link it straight to your performance. But sometimes their weight is the actual issue. And coaches will come out and say that. And, and their strength and conditioning coaches will come out and say that. Again, you need to lose five kilos. That is what will make you faster, help you jump higher. Like sometimes it is just a scientific fact. Mm. Now, the language that you use has to be appropriate, but the analysis doesn't have to change, in my opinion. Julie DeCaro is a run-of-the-mill, mediocre beat writer. Not atrocious, not good. Just sort of there. I'm actually not a beat writer at all, but okay. <laughs> Sarah Spain is just a scrub muffin. I don't even know what a scrub muffin is. I don't is. either. I love muffins. One of the players should beat you to death with their hockey stick. Like the whore you are. KS, the trolling of Erin Mullen is your little bit of bad smashed avo for the week. Talk me through this one. Yeah, it's pretty gross smashed avo. Um, so, I mean, the the piece that came out this week was um, that, you know, Erin Mullen had been successful in court and um, convicting someone who was online trolling her, which I guess is teeny, eeny little bit of good news for something like this, that someone has been held personally accountable for behaving so abhorrently online towards her. But I still think it's like, it still makes me just feel awful. Um, especially when a lot of the messages that this person sent her were published and you could read them and they're just disgusting. Um, and they're things I've seen before and they're things that just make you just shiver and want to cry and run away because they're so personal. They, like, they're directed completely at you as an individual. So there's no way that you can sort of deflect them and say, oh, it's just a generalization. Like, these people just target you so, so horrifically. Um and, you know, this person isn't the only person who's done this to Erin. This person isn't the only person who's done this to women in sport, who's done it to women across any industry across the world. Like, there are just so many of these people out there just who just still think it's okay to say these things, um, believing that they don't have any impact because they're online and that the digital space isn't real. And I think what we've seen from our conversation already today is that the digital space is very real. And I think that we need to stop considering it as a place that's sort of out there in outer space it doesn't exist because it's not physical because I think it has very real world impacts on people's lives which has been backed up by a lot of data especially in um, youth suicides from bullying online um, it just makes me sick that we're still talking about this um, stuff and it makes me just really sad that we haven't moved past people thinking it's okay to be horrific online like just be better people um, really like it's just beyond the joke um, the other thing that I thought of when this came up was um, and I would recommend anyone who hasn't seen it uh, I think it came out in 2016 was a video online between um, two US journalists um, Julie DeCaro and Sarah Splain where they got people to read back to them um, I guess you know sort of that mean tweet sort of vein um, they got men to come in and read to them to their face comments that they had received online um, that were attached to like pieces of their journalism or comments that they had made in sport on their social media channels. And it is 
really difficult viewing um but i think the more people who see that video and just see the impact of those words and the impact that they have when they're spoken out loud it might just help understand a bit more the context that those words have um because sometimes that's lost when you just see it written online and i think we need to remember that they are really impactful and that video is chilling um, but it's important so go look it up and if you see anyone online who's talking to people in this way just please please report mcgrath suddenly lengthened So, some chili to add spice to our eggs this morning. Did Ablett deserve a week, Gordon? Like, in terms of hot sauce, this is like, I don't know, what's the weakest hot sauce going around? This doesn't even touch the sides. He did not deserve a week. How did he possibly deserve a week? The, the real issue is, can, we, can the AFL just decide on a form of jurisdiction? Because, like, we have an umpire incorrectly reporting him in the first place during the game because they feel like they have to. And then the MIP comes out and then uses this weird, oblique, cold table to go, well, actually, despite all the all the other things around the situation and all the context and his good record, we have to follow this metric and plug in the numbers and, oh, he gets a week. And then they go, well, everyone clearly understood that was never going to be a week. So they go to the tribunal, they waste everyone's time, they spend all this money and act like it's a pseudo-court case. Everyone blows up for six hours and then we get the right decision after three minutes of consideration. Three minutes is all it took to realise it didn't deserve a week. It's good for the media, though. Gives us oh, something, it's good for clicks. Something to yarn about, isn't it? <laughs> Over clicks. The favourite son gets his first suspension, and then it's And then he time. doesn't get his first suspension, yeah. and he ever was going to get his first suspension. Like, there's so many other things to talk about in sport than, like, this pretend report. And as much as they say, like, the three-person MIP didn't work, well, it's a three-person tribunal, so it's essentially exactly the same. So they could just... They just have to use the metric. Well, no, but as in, like, they could just do what everyone else has been asking and the players have asked this and said this, the coaches have said this and they're, and they're, all their different forums are saying, just have have a tribunal of a three-person jury that just looks at the footage and makes a decision. And like, ditch the metrics. Do we point. need... Oh, yeah, but, like, ditch the QCs. Like, do we even need that much? QCs at the AFL. It's like, like, Gary Ablett had to present his name and how many AFL games he played to Stuart Lowe. <laughs> Stuart Lowe knows who Gary Ablett is. <laughs> <laughs> that is so good. Hello, I'm Gary Ablett. <laughs> Two-time Brownlow medalist. Greatest like player of all five time. Five-time grand finalist. Like, one of the greatest, top five greatest players of all time. And I've never been reported in my 328 games. Uh, so I think we'll all agree that this is a complete and utter waste of time. <laughs> and in the end, we did. He's kicked one goal in three weeks. 0-1-0. Zero, zero. He didn't have a touch to half time. Do you think it's fair that we, we discussed Tom Lynch, the player? You're out. The club's... On a cusp of going up or down, they need their leaders, they need their best players to perform. He hasn't had a kick for three weeks. Do you think that's... So, Tom Lynch, Lynchy boy. I had the joy, the joy, probably not the joy, of watching Richmond at Eddie Hard on Saturday with Fiona, friend of the pod, who I must say, I uh, we kicked the first goal and I went for a really ambitious scarf wave, which very quickly came back to bite me on the arse. In fact, I'm convinced <laughs> that's why we lost, but... Um, we watched Aaron Norton, Territory Reds, and Tom Lynch have a bit of a Barry Crocker um, to the point that on the final siren, he took a mark, contested mark on the wing. Dad sent me a message that said, I've been waiting three hours for that. And that was it. I then tried to text back and console him and he just wasn't having a bar of it, the old man. And I, when I rang him on Sunday, he went on a good 20-minute rant about Tom Lynch. And the media, um, they went on a rant about Tom as well. And I just can't help but feel like this was a little bit harsh. Gordon? I think we're finding it interesting... 
air at the moment in terms of AFL media in particular, AFL and NRL in particular, where the media seems to want to become the spokesperson for for a club's fans. Hmm. Agreed. So as in like, so your dad is more than, like he is more well in his right to ring you up, fan to fan, father to son and be like, oh, I'm bloody going to throw up if Tom Lynch never kick, like, kicks another goal, takes another mark. Because he's a fan. And and fans are in, by inherent nature ridiculous. Like, wow. is Tom, is, but like, is Tom Lynch like, not a very good footballer? Absolutely not. He's clearly in like the top, at least the top half of football. He's second in the Coleman. He's second in the Coleman. So and he's had three goals weeks. A journalist's job is to write a factual story. An analyst's job is to like break down the game and tell us what actually happened. And at the moment, we're acting as like spokespeople for the, like fans' outrage. Being no, the opinion like, writers doing that really. Yeah, like, Robert's like, column was opinion. No, but he he masquerades as the chief football writer, which is a journalist, and as an analyst. So he he does not masquerade as the spokesperson for fan outrage, which is what these what what these markets are becoming more and more Correct. so. Yep. So is it acceptable for a fan a fan page to say we expect more from Tom Lynch? Totally, because that's their audience. Is it acceptable for fans to come out in between fans and say that? Absolutely. But for a national, not a national, but yes, he's on a national stage now with AFL three hundred and sixty. For a national and statewide media person to be like. Oh, I think oh no, he's not good enough, and it's going to be an absolute waste after three weeks of bad performances into like a what a four year contract. Well, that's a joke. That's not that's not a story. It's not. It's, it's nothing. Well, I thought the most level headed tweet was last night. Julian Stoop basically tweeted that three weeks ago the footy world was gushing over Tom Lynch because he kicked six in Adelaide and Richmond had that remarkable win against hmm. Port Adelaide, and so that's. More men- that performance was more meritorious because he was coming off serious knee surgery. Mm. Three weeks later, we're smashing him. And so the truth has to be somewhere in the middle. Like, he can't be that good three weeks ago and now just be an absolutely terrible footballer. The reality is he's probably not as good as we thought he was at that point, And he's probably not as bad as we think he is now. The reality is Tom Lynch is coming off nearly 12 months out of the PCL. He's playing in a new system. He's- it was playing on a night where his midfield got absolutely mauled hmm. like Richmond had nothing going for them anywhere on the field yeah when you go de- when you lose by 40 points your key forwards are probably not going to have a great game like look at Adelaide like when they play badly their forwards don't kick goals yeah. because they're not giving because them the they're ball playing badly like yeah. it's it's kind of like 101 so like, and don't get me wrong I think Lynch has got work to do I think he's clearly got um, in terms of jumping at the ball he's clearly got athletically things that he will get better at as he gets further into his recovery. He started mm. full training two weeks before round one. So I'm just kind of like, yeah, like it was frustrating watching him and it was frustrating watching a 19-year-old take nine contested marks, break records and sit on blokes' heads in front of me while my friend was losing the plot with joy. <laughs> but like at the same time... Like, and also the converse is true as well because then people come out and, and that's, this is the difference between when you get a nugget of information and you, then you turn it into a story. And I think... If anything, the Australian sports media is inherently lazy. Because that's what they'll do. So, shouts to the Swamp Thing. Great stats, man. His job on Twitter is just to post stats. And he did. So, Norton's uh, contested marks was the second most in history. And he was up there with the likes of Carey and Lloyd. He doesn't assess the stat. He but he's not. He, that stat does not say that Norton is like Carey and Lloyd. But then, everyone sees that stat, pulls it apart and goes, Oh, actually, no, we've got another Carey and Lloyd on our hands. Oh, amazing. No, it's one game. And that's... That's as bad journalism and writing and analysis as it is to go reflexively opposite on Tom Lynch. Agreed. It's just, yeah. like, tell me what's happening in the game. Like, break it down for the things I can't see. Mm. I can see that Tom Lynch had one bad game. Mm. 
and it plays into what we've had three, but it will play into that what we talk about with Stephen May in a moment mm. in terms of the. I think there's such a need to shoot the recruit um, in our in our game. Like they're always like, oh, the biggest non-performer story is generally, I think, the big name recruit. But you've noticed this a little bit with JD case. Yeah, and it's interesting because JD being Jack Darling, just to clarify. <laughs> Mr. Darling. Not um, Jack Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not talk about my Tuesday night. Too early in the morning um, for that. Yep. Play on. Yep. So, uh, and I, I mean, it wouldn't get as much traction over here, but that would be the conversation that West Coast fans and the Western Australian media are having with Jack Darling at the moment is yep. his performance in that space. But I almost think, probably contrary to your point, Gordon, like I don't mind a little bit of sprinkling of the fan voice in these type of narratives in media and from get, Just get a fan to write it then. Don't get Robbo to write it. But I feel like I kind of like knowing that my sports journalists are fans. Like, I want to know that they have a passion and that they're involved. And that's probably, like, a niche thing coming from me because that's the type of narratives I more enjoy reading. Like, I like to have a bit of a balance with... Probably with analysts, I do just want to know about the game. But if people are writing opinion about the game, if people are sort of speculating about different things like i don't mind if a little bit of passion comes through that does indicate a little bit of a fan voice and probably not as much as what we've been talking about like i think there's definitely a level but like i don't subscribe to this school of like unbiased journalism because i believe inherently everyone is biased so and i'm not a classically trained journalist so i'm a bit outside of this too but that's what makes reading about particularly my team and about Jack Darling to come back to this conversation more interesting is because like I kind of do want a little bit of fan craziness yeah, in fine. there because it get, brings me more into like yeah. that narrative of the conversation around that player or my club. But that's that's where we have a lack of diversity in the media anyway. Mm-hmm. So so Robbo is the chief football writer for a newspaper. He's he has a gig on a radio station and he has a gig nightly on TV. So he has three jobs. Mm. And, he now, and now he's taking the role of a fan, an analyst, and a journalist all at the same time as well. In a little bit, I would rather see him do his role as a journalist properly and then let the role of an analyst go to someone else and let the role of a fan go to someone else. Yeah, and then you have sure. diversity of voices. Yeah. And you don't have this confused thing where is Robbo, is Robbo talking, talking as a journalist? Is he talking as a... And he'll do that when he, like, when he comes into topics. He goes, oh, now I'm putting on my... Like journalism hat, and now I'm putting on my fan hat. Now I'm speaking for this group. Now I'm speaking for that group. And either do it in a way that it's clear cut, everyone when they when they read it knows which which hat you're wearing, or split that role up and give other people the voice to to be able to do it better. Yeah, I think that's at the moment it's not being done well. If you want really nuffy fan voices. Just actually get fans. Like, that's I a way of selling. I think Could, there's a balance between like nuffy fan voices and journalism. Like I think there can be a like a bit of both together, I still think. I don't think it has to be two complete scales. But like, even then, that's fine. But like, the take to say that uh, that Tom Lynch is cooked, mm. it's just a bad take. Yeah, after six sure. weeks, yeah. it's just such a small that's sample what I said, size. Sprinkling, sprinkling. <laughs> I love to have a beer with Duncan. I love to have a beer with Duncan. We drink in moderation. And we never, ever, ever get rolling drunk. We drink at the town. Moving on to the people's question. So, Gordo, what did you get up to on Sunday? On Sunday? Yeah. Have a quiet beer with some mates? Uh, I did not. I was working, so I was sober and watching football. What about you, Case? 
Uh, I was hosting a panel at the Clunes Book Town so n- Festival. None of us, so we were both being professional, uh, sober, uh, fit and prepared and ready to do our jobs and doing everything pre and and post the uh, our actual job to make sure we're in the best physical possibility, not only to do our job on that particular day, but then back it up and do our job every other particular day that we need to do our jobs. Yeah, that was a good lean-in, wasn't it? <laughs> did you have a beer on Sunday with your mates, mate? No, I didn't. Anyway, Stephen May did. Um, and I guess the people's question this week is whether Stephen May going for, I think we've said there were pints, not pots. Um, Four pints in two hours. If we're going to give it specific, we're going to break a news story. Were you like, did is. you interview the bartender about that? How many pints did Stephen May order? Because um, <laughs> this has kind of been done to death. And the people's question really is, is this a story? I'm going to lead in here by asking you whether you thought Melbourne made this a story by asking him to apologise to the group. No. No. A, it's a story. Okay, why? Tell me why. Okay. So, who are the stakeholders in, in the game? Fans? So, Melbourne fans would like to know if I'm paying 750 bucks a year to go watch my team play, if the, and essentially that money goes to paying the players in a roundabout way of footy economics. So, my money is going to paying Stephen May, who's currently in rehab, having getting on the piss on a Sunday when he should be worrying about getting back in the game. Yep. That's my perspective as a Melbourne fan doing the, the Robbo hat change bit. Other things, like, so I'm a punter. I love to gamble. So this is a story for me because I want to know how's his rehab going? Is he going to be coming back anytime soon? Is he taking his rehab seriously? Is he doing everything in his power to get back? When he comes back, will he be at the peak of his powers considering he turned up to pre-season training by all reports underdone as well? So that's the that's the story. Is it is it a moral outrage? Like, should he be banned from football? Or like, should no? That's not the story. But there are relevant football stories to be told here to relevant football pockets. And did they make it a story by making him apologise? No, because they made him apologise because they he broke team rules. But it wasn't a rule, though, was it? Isn't that under contention too? That it wasn't actually a directive. It's just kind of a loose recommendation. That well, all shouldn't... eighteen strength and conditioning coaches at, at all AFL clubs when you get given your rehab sheets, say that you're not meant to drink alcohol during rehab because it, it prevents you from that, rehabbing. Has that been like proven that what, that's what he was given? Because uh, they were saying that it wasn't actually a team rule. Well, it's complicated. So I'm just going to scale back a step. Yeah. So what is the actual impact of having four pints in two hours while you have a groin injury? It's just, it's an inflammatory property. So yes. alcohol makes you bleed. Yeah. So a groin strain or a tear is, is essentially a bleeding of, of the muscles. Yeah. And every time you consume alcohol, you thin your blood and you bleed more. So it takes longer to recover. Yeah. That's, I think that's fairly... Even amateur level athletes probably are relative, relatively aware of that. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm not so. questioning awareness. I'm yeah. just questioning the actual term of having, like, the team rules that he clearly broke. Because I think that's been... That was what um, they were talking about on the couch when Tom Rice came in. It was like he didn't actually break team rules. It was just, like, their guidelines. Mm. But there's nothing, like, in any literature or anything mm. that is a definitive rule that he broke. The thing that I found really perplexing was... Jordan Lewis going on 360 last night and saying that he needed to be smarter about it. That his sort of point was, don't get caught, be smarter about it. Um, he was essentially saying, Lewis, that he had drunk while injured before. And so yeah. I was like, well, that's really weird. If I was Stephen May hearing that, I'd be like, then why am I apologising when my teammates have done this? They've just been smarter about it. Yeah. Like he kind of, the suggestion was that his, his error was that he drank in public in mm. a position where someone could get a photo of him. Which rather is, than drinking then also home. like another really damaging narrative too because it's not being smarter about your rehab it's being smarter about yeah. breaking rules so like, what what kind of message are you sending yeah, by saying I, that I just thought that was a really perplexing yeah. thing for another Melbourne player to come out and say yes. which is why this is actually a story because when you have a, a senior position player coming out and saying not saying 
he needs to we need to focus more on our rehab and be better professionals so that we can win games for our club win games for our fans pay back our stakeholders he said just said oh nah like I've taken the piss and been on the piss during rehab mm-hmm. and uh, if you're going to do it this is how you do it and we need to teach him how to do it better essentially it's like we need to teach him to not get, not get our club in the newspaper is what he essentially said for read between the lines that's a bigger issue for Melbourne Especially when you come out of a season when you are 2-6 and six and you expected to play finals last year and you got smashed in the, in the prelim and all those things that your fans want to, don't, want to, don't want to hear. They want to hear that this club's ready to take the next step. Instead, they're hearing that, actually, no, all these players don't actually care. Like, it, it's so easy for fans to get into a position when they go, the boys don't care. They're not trying hard enough. All those, like, sad cliches that we grab onto to, to excuse why our team's behaving poorly. But then when you actually get given evidence, that's probably the case well, then it's hard not to say that that's a story. I think, it, I mean, there's clearly interest in it. I'm just not sure that footballer has beer is a particularly wonderful or brilliant mm. headline. Like it's within context. No, it is. I just, I guess the question for me so is... So it's highly paid footballer who came in as a recruit to try and take Ellen to the next step during rehab is on the beers and many beers at once. Okay, so my next question then is if you are 100% that it's a story, at what point are we overdoing it? We're overdoing it when we say that he's a terrible person mm. and that he needs to be banned and treated like he's taken drugs. But this is also... So this is where I get really annoyed. So it's totally okay for him to go out and have pints with the boys because pints with the boys is okay. But if a player gets done doing illicit drugs, then he needs to be banished from the game because it's totally okay for people to self-medicate, as many journalists have come out and said, we all self-medicate, we all self-medicate, we all have these endorsement... Bucks went on TV last night as a Wolf Blast ambassador, but then we can't go, we can't see that young people can be like other young people, like all their mates do on a Sunday, and take a pill or do some powder or whatever they want to do. Yes, it's illegal, so that's a different aspect to it, but if they don't get caught by the police, they just get caught by the club, they get banished. That's where, that's where, that's where it doesn't add up for mine. If you want to banish the drug users, you banish the alcohol users too. In terms of their, the effect on their performance and the effect on their rehab, exactly the same. In all of this, I certainly hope that Melbourne are doing their due diligence behind the scenes to look after him. And I just think there's a point here where we're still dealing with a human being, which is why I think now, once it's been reported, we know what's happened, it's, it's apologised, it just needs to now not be forgotten because it's clearly on the public record, but I think there's a point where we don't need 17,000 op-eds writing about Stephen May having beers. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's a, it has a, an end date, as a, a use-by date as a story. Yeah. Um, and within all of that, I just... And we spoke about language with Josh Green. I just hope that people are being careful about what they are alluding to. The point about self-medicating with alcohol versus drugs is a really interesting point because the thing that came out last night when Robbo was talking about and Buckley was talking about is they're like, oh, no, everyone gets home from work and wants to have a couple of beers. Hmm. That's such a normalised... But then if they, if they say that he's suffering from personal issues or mental health issues, you're meant to go to work on Monday morning. Correct, yes. And, you're, and you go out on Sunday night and get hammered. And then, you're, and then you don't turn up to work. And your excuse to me when I say to you, oh, like, are you all right, JB? And he's like, no, nah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling so crook. I'm having a rough time of it. I went out last night, blah, blah, I took the day off work. I'd be like, are you okay? Mm. That's what I want to see Melbourne Football Club do. Yes. Is go, not excuse it and say, he's suffering from personal issues, so it's okay. No, he's suffering from personal issues, and we need to ask, are you okay? And that's what we don't do when it's alcohol or whether it's drugs or whether it's anything or whether it's misbehavior, being late to training. We get on and we, we pile on and cool. 
And I said, the stats for stakeholders, and fair enough. But the next step for the club is to do, is to come out and say, yes, he's suffering from personal issues, and we are doing everything in our power to make sure that he is okay. And this is the same we had with Hogan, really, in round one. Mm. We had it with Hogan, but we didn't have it when players... Again, we don't have it when players get banned for drugs. When players get banned for drugs, the journalists come out and say, it's a disgrace, and they should be banned, and they should be thrown out of the game. Not, oh, he's self-medicating, and... Is he okay? There are a lot of legitimate champions in this club, Parker. And all we got for joining was a Guernsey and a pat on the back. You chase a, a lump of pigskin around a muddy ground as if your life depended on it, and when you finally get it, you kick it to buggery and then go chasing it again. Football shits me. Book club. Book club this week is all about you, Casey. It is all about you, because you've been absolutely killing it of late. And we have been lucky enough to read the first chapter of your PhD, which was recently announced. I'm told not so recently, but I clearly missed the memo. Uh, as the 2018 Lyle Olson Graduate Student Essay Contest winner. So the essay, Good Nights, Good Night Stories for Female Sports Fans, was published in Athlong, which is a sports literary journal with, I reckon, one of the most lovely covers I've ever seen on anything ever. So... Um, we've got a few questions about this one, Case. I want you to uh, firstly talk us through the title. So you've borrowed this title, Goodnight Sports Stories, sorry, Goodnight Stories for Female Sports Fans, from Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. What mm-hmm. is Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, Casey Simons? Uh, so Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls is a book that was uh, published in 2016 um, and now has a second volume as well. And it was a book that was uh, sort of designed to set out to create some sort of additional narratives for young readers that really amplified the story of women across history who young readers and admittedly a lot of older readers too wouldn't be so aware of just to keep putting um, women just at the front of um, children's narratives because they've been left out for so long. So it kind of blew up when it came out. It was very well received. Um, It was started by um, a Kickstarter campaign. So it was all self-funded and then they exceeded all of their um, fundraising goals and the authors sort of put together this just beautiful book and um, it's just profiles of amazing women across every sort of industry and facet of life and their story that's um, written in a really palatable way for young readers to sort of digest and connect with these um, like great stories. And I sort of picked that up a couple of years ago and had a bit of a flick through and I was just like, holy moly, like this book is amazing. Um, I'd never seen anything like it, particularly in children's literature. I'd never seen anything like it when I was a young reader growing up. Um, and I just sort of had this, I know, so this moment that was just a bit of like a light bulb going off and it just sort of clicked in my head. It's like, what would have my life been if I had seen this type of representation of women when I was younger? And how would I think about women now if I'd been exposed to that earlier? So this essay very specifically talks about fe- four female-authored footy fiction books. Mm-hmm. Um, three of them AFL, one of them NRL. Yeah. And so I just wanted you to give us the really quick nutshell of what your main point in this essay is. Like, so summarize your 10,000 word piece of work into <laughs> a 30 second grab for our podcast, please. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I guess extending on that experience of picking up um, that book, my thought process going back to terms of representation was to try and bring that thought process to these books that I had um, read a few years prior when I was starting out my PhD journey because I was looking for representations of women in the Australian rules football narrative and I found three fiction books that were written by women and I sort of had this moment of like 
that yes, they're here. Like there's representation. Women have been writing about Australian girls football um, in a fiction sense, which is what I was really interested in as a creative writer. And I remember reading them sort of around the time of well, towards the end of 2014, because two had come out that year and one had come out the year prior. And I just had such a negative reaction to them. Um, and I kind of really instantly discarded all of them and just thought, oh, I didn't enjoy these. I, these are not really worth my time. I'll probably just cite them in my PhD and that'll be it. And then when I did, saw the um, Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls, that made me think about those books because I went back to that time of when, if I had seen that book when I was younger, how would have that framed my reading of other women subsequently? So I decided to go back and reread those books through that lens and through a lot of um, just being aware of a lot of the gender bias research that I'd been doing um, through my PhD, just trying to bring that along and reread those books through a lens of what's called autoethnography, which is the main methodology for my PhD, which is a process of... um, sort of assessing assessing the cultural landscape and assessing yourself within it and reacting to sort of those experiences and just being really aware of yourself within that space and then reflexively critiquing it. So yep. that's how this whole process sort of cool. came about. So just for the listeners, the three books were The Family Men by Catherine Harris, 2014, Game Day by Miriam Schved, 2014, and The Whole of My World by Nicole Hayes, 2013. And so you talked about the fact that there weren't a lot of female authored fiction books at all. One of the ones that you do mention fleetingly is as an old favourite, which is the male-authored, male-led teen sort of fiction book, Specky McGee. So did you observe any female characters in that text? And if so, what did you make of those characters? So I guess the process of looking at sports fiction as a whole in terms of Australian rules football, like there's just not much of it at all. So that's why I was so interested in those three texts that were written by women. And then my thought went back to books like Specky McGee because there's such a disparity then between sports fiction for adult readers and then the majority of sports fiction in this country is books like Specky McGee who are aimed at younger readers but then also – traditionally and that has changed a little bit with the inception of the aflw but those books were always written to encourage young boys to read because the numbers for young male readers were so low because they weren't interested so those books are quite popular because you know they're footy based they're written by you know like speaking mcgee's co-author by gary lyons so there's a connection to the book sort of from someone in the real world in that space who the kids would identify with those books that i read um and there's quite a few of them like um I think Specky McGee, I don't even really recall the narrative that much because I think I just there was nothing in there for me to really identify with. Yeah. So I kind of just – that's another line as a citation in my PhD. But the um, like this Fox Swift book that's um, yeah, that still really yep. – like there's a female character in that. So I think like those narratives are changing a little bit. But I think they're still – they're not for me. So that's why I wasn't – I didn't give them like a lot of time. Yeah. Um, because I'm really interested in for women or or men too, um, who are sort of in like the space that I'm in, who've already gone through adolescence and been so framed by their cultural understanding of sports literature. Um, where are we at? Because I think it's great that we're seeing the narratives change for young readers, but to me, they're not quite changing for older readers, yep. and we're kind of sort of still setting those those um, stereotypes. So you've listed three books that you found that kind of fit the criterion of being. This is, this is what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend those books? 
So I would recommend them now. Um, and this is sort of, I guess, the point of the essay that I wrote is because I sort of went on this journey where on my first reading, I wouldn't have recommended them. I wouldn't have thought they were worth your time. Um, a lot of the content in them I kind of discarded as just irrelevant or not well written and just really terrible critiques of those works. Um, but having gone through the process of rereading them through a new lens and trying to put those biases to the side. And those biases for me are coming from sort of a lifelong of performing elements of gender in a space that's hyper-masculine that I tried to place myself into by being stereotypically one of the boys and sort of exhibiting more like boyish behavior and I sort of had those thoughts that if I went into the space um, with people I used to go to the football with who were men having beers before the game, if I brought up those books and said they were good, that wouldn't have given me, done me any favours in that space. So I kind of just had this, I don't know, instant um, sort of unconscious decisions like, oh, well, this is a book written by a woman. These people who I identified with at the football aren't going to be interested in that, so I'm not interested in it. So upon rereading them, trying to get rid of all of that, like, yes, I would recommend them now because I think they are important contributions to the sports literature narrative, of which there's not a lot. So I think they should Mm. be read. And so you had this idea in Shved's book about, well, I've called it the mark of the year conundrum. But essentially what you found yourself doing was nitpicking really little and minor mm. factual inaccuracies that footy nuffies would pick up on. Yeah. And they really affected your enjoyment of the text. So just explain to me what the mark of the year conundrum was. So there's a... So Sved's book is really interesting. Um, she It's like a... It's a narrative-driven novel, but each chapter is told through an eyes of, um, of a different character, which is really... Um, really quite unique and in one chapter it's told through the eyes of sort of that player who's getting a bit on in in his ears and and is still fighting for position in the team and he's really bitter at some of the new recruits coming in um because they seem to be you know fitter and more able to do and things he used to be able to do and he has this sort of like bugbear that um he took this amazing mark in a finals game um and he thinks he was pipped at the post for mark of the year and that really sort of affects him because he thinks if he had won that accolade then he would be shining brighter in the eyes of the coaches however the technicalities of how that award works in quote-unquote real life is you cannot win that award for a mark taken in a final series um it's that's not how it works um in our current afl landscape so when i read that passage and it happens quite early in the book it was just like a, and this was on my first reading um, several years ago. It was just like a, a switch flicked. It was like, oh, this is wrong. This yeah. There's something wrong yeah. in this book. And I was pretty much offside for the rest of the book from there, which at the time I didn't think much about. I just thought, here's a woman who's written something about football and got it wrong. And I just discarded it and mm. didn't really think much about it until much, much later when I went through that process that I described before mm. of rereading them. Um And I find it so interesting because there's two questions that I've asked myself from that. One of them is in the essay where I try to situate myself in that this is a book that's fictional. So why can't in this space, how that award works, be that way? Because it's fiction. Like she is putting, um, Sved is putting this narrative like in, you know, the context of Australian rules football, but it is still fiction. So you can have some sort of liberties in that. So why didn't I allow her Mm. that? sort of liberty to have that sort of quirk in that in how that award works and the second one is if 
this book had been written by a man, I undoubtedly would not have questioned it. Like, I'm pretty certain Mm. with how I know myself as a reader framed by my predisposed biases. I think I would have just left it because I think I would have given... If I had doubt about my knowledge of that, I think I would have just allowed the male writer to be correct. I think I would have just let that happen, even if I thought it Mm. was wrong. Um, And two, I probably would have given more creative license to the writer as well to allow that process just to happen in the narrative, which is really, really shameful and a really difficult thing to process. Question for you, Gordo. Would that sort of factual inaccuracy in a book written by a man annoy you? Well, I think... Maybe there's also potential misreading. As in, how many professional footballers would know the rules about Mark of the Year? Why couldn't this? Why couldn't a player desperate to continue his career be so obsessed with his like need to show worth to his coaches mm. that he actually goes, "No, what? I took an amazing mark in the final series. Of course, I'm up for Mark of the Year." And then, of course, the reader would realize, "Oh no, of co- like what? What a desperate, what a desperate character! Like he's actually looking for mm. something that can't be happening." I think. That potentially the possibility as well. Yeah. Oh, but the 100%. fact that, that that possibility isn't isn't allowed by the reader in your mm. scope kind of goes on to prove your point that you're narr- you're narrowing the scope because of who the author is. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Uh, in terms of factual inaccuracies, I think it depends on how much you base it in real life. So if the book is if the book is like player X plays for the Collingwood Football Club and they're playing at the MCG and they're paying this a fictional story in a very real place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the whole point of creating that environment is to to attach me to the real world, then yeah, you gotta you gotta make sure that if it's a night game, the sharing's yellow, and if it's a and a, yeah, there's you don't have these inaccuracies. So or it becomes like a non-fiction piece in terms of having to get the accuracy, the, the facts of it. Well, no, it's just like when you watch a movie. Know, yeah, 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 when you're like, if they don't have consistent, if they have consistency, it has to check or, out. It has to check out. But if they, but if it's the you know the South Melbourne Barracudas and they're playing in this fictional league, then yeah, cool. Like have your own rules. Make the rules up for the yeah. universe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Casey, I was going to ask you as an extension of this, and we talk a lot about. We've had many conversations about fan and many different ways of being a fan mm-hmm. and living with whatever your individual fan life and experience is. But when you were writing this essay, or maybe like pre-essay book judgment first reading Casey what were her pet footy fan peeves did you have like pet peeves what were the things that people do that would really annoy you in terms of characters in those books in characters or or in real life um yeah previous football fan life Casey is very judgmental about what women wear at the football um okay what what should they wear at the football And this is not me currently saying No, this, I know. But I'm past just, yes. pa- past well, that Casey. That has been clarified. <laughs> um, uh, anyone who was just, like, overly dressed up, who I thought was just, um, you know, wearing, it was too high fashion, wearing high heels. Um, yeah. Wearing, so high heels are a no-go? Were. Were a no-go for past Even Casey. Though, have you always been a, fa- like a fashion person, though? Like, you, you live in, and breathe that culture outside mm. of sport. Yeah. No, we were going mad for Met Gala yesterday. Yeah, yeah. You two were, I was 100%. So this is where, like, my identity crisis has been over the last few years, is that I would purposely dress myself in a way for the football that um, I think kind of, like, tried to, like, de-gender myself a little bit. So just very casual, like, jeans, team scarf, maybe a jumper, sneakers, um, minimal makeup, I wouldn't do my hair, like, ponytail sort of thing, like, just trying to be very, very plain. Um, and that was such a conscious thing, but I didn't realize it was a conscious thing. And then if I saw women who 
like even if I admired what they were wearing through that fashion lens as someone who is a fashion fan, it would still be a judgmental look. Like what why are you wearing that here? Like that's sort of that's not welcome here. And people and I did that because that's like it's a, you do that in a defense mechanism way when you're in this position because the people who I would be going to the football with, who I don't really go to the football with these people anymore, um, they would catcall women who were wearing certain things. They would judge women in a sexualized way for wearing certain things. So then by association, I would do that too because in a way that's like a primal way of protecting yourself to disassociate yourself with people who are fulfilling those roles for men because I wanted to align myself more with men than those women Hmm. because I didn't want to be talked about or objectified or positioned in that way because that was that's horrifying um I never wanted to be in that position so instead of trying to make that position safer for other women I distanced myself from other women and put myself on the other side of the line which is something I still struggle a lot to do because it's really scary to do that. Um, but it's something I right now that I try and be a lot better at. Like I'm trying to be a bit more comfortable in my skin. Like, you know, for example, I just really love makeup. Like I love wearing bright lipstick and putting lots of makeup on. Like to me, that's really fun. And I would never do that at the football, but now I'm doing more and more of that because I think to me, that's who I am and that's my identity. And I want to do that. So that's like, perhaps like a really trivial thing but to me that's really important because that's more about who I am in that space but past Casey would have never wore lipstick to the football because she would have been made fun of by her male friends and they would have said things to her like who are you trying to pick up and are you trying to score or things like that and that took me out of the fan space that I wanted to be in because Mm. that made my participation in that space not as a fan as something else I think that's not like that's yeah not just a female experience either because I remember when I uh, first took a girlfriend to the footy, I'd I'd been a very loud dresser, very colourful dresser. When I went to the footy, I'd dress down mm-hmm. or just dressed in more muted tones. And she's like, "Why are you dressed weirdly?" I was like, oh, "I'm going to the footy." She's like, "Yeah, but why? Like, just, doesn't that just you just go to the footy? You don't have to dress a certain mm-hmm. way." I was like, "Oh, I just feel more comfortable if I'm not." And again, it's that like that. It's that weird part of being a fan is being one of us. Yeah, but. If you're not a person that regularly acts like one of us or one of a group, mm-hmm. when you go to football, you do stick out. Yeah. And I like as much as I like my club, I don't often dress up in club colours. No, you mm-hmm. don't. You're the opposite to me. And and so like I will always stick out if I'm cheering for Richmond, but not dress up as a Richmond fan. Yeah. Or the or the reverse. I'll go I'll go to a game as an agnostic or a neutral, and then cheer for the team I want to win in the day. And again, it's like oh, why are you? There is often that exchange of either or I go from a different event and I'm dressed how I normally dress. And then you just get strange looks anyway. Yeah. So, but yeah, there is that. It is that weird fan experience of not all fans are welcome. And I think even today there still is an aspect of mm-hmm. true fans or real fans. Definitely. So, Casey, you've kind of answered this question. So, I imagine that you have now become a little bit more of a forgiving fan. Was my next little line? Um, I mean, I'd like to think so, and I think that's um that's not a like that's not an end point. Like that's a journey, and I think the point of like the essay that I wrote kind of ended on that note is that I think for where I am personally um, at my age in the current cultural landscape that we're in is that I'm always going to have a lot of self-doubt and I think that is going to be true of a lot of people who are sort of at that sort of same stage of life as me and maybe like a bit older and maybe a little bit younger as well but um, because we are seeing a bit of a wave of change but I think the awareness of 
predisposed biases and inherent sexism is something that I just have to be super, super aware of. Um, and I just have to always have at the back of my mind, um, when I have initial reactions to things. Cause I think the end of the essay basically sort of said to me that i um, said to the reader that, um, I can't trust myself with these sort of things anymore. So when people ask me about these books and if I would recommend them, like you asked me before, Gordo, like I just say, yes, I say, yes, these books are, they should be read because I think there's a lot about them that are great, but I don't trust myself anymore um, to actually give a really honest or whatever quote unquote honest is interpretation of these sort of things, because I think I'm just too far gone at the moment. And I think that, as aware as I can be and as much as I want to force myself to change, like that's just always going to be there. And that's just part of my identity now. And for better or worse, that's just going to be there. So I just have to know that it's there and I just have to work hard. And I think that's the the issue when we talk about like authenticity, especially in fans and what a real fan is, because I think a lot of the behaviors that I exhibit now are really forced because I'm forcing myself to be the fan that I want to be. And I think before I would have automatically classified that behavior as inauthentic because it's not natural. But then I think what was natural to me before was incorrect and shameful. So it is an ongoing process. I can't sit here and say that I'm a better fan and a better person and I've figured out the fan conundrum and I'm amazing at being a fan now because I'm definitely not. There's still a lot of baggage there. But I'm trying and I think that's all we can really do. And I think just talking about it is starting to make me feel a lot better about it. And hopefully I will get to a point at some point where I can be that quote-unquote ideal fan. <laughs> Part of that was in creating this podcast and Sporting Chance, the, the media entity, was that I think especially in Australia because we're such a small country population-wise, we do only have like one type of fan still, and it is that tribal fan. And it even came across to me like at work yesterday. I was talking about uh, the game where uh, Brody Grundy kicked the snap against Richmond on a Friday night, and I, as a Richmond fan, was deemed not to be a very good Richmond fan because I could see the amazingness in that moment. And they're like, "Well, no, but you back Richmond, you should be heartbroken. Like you can never look at that game ever again." I was like, "I've rewatched that game like four or five times. It's one of the best games of footy going around on a Friday night." So it's. The reason why I went to try and create these spaces to have these serious conversations about like the the political cultural impact of, of fandom, but also like that all fans are, are real fans, and you can be an agnostic, you can be a, a super coach only, you can only care about tipping, you can just be a punter, you can you can you can fan however you want to fan, mm. and and we, I want to create a space where all those voices are heard via all possible mediums in a really really good way.